My name is Nate Cole, and I've been going to Rolling Hills for almost eight years. I'm Lindsay Cole. I always knew from a young age that I wanted to adopt. Um, it's just something that was always on my heart and how I saw um, myself forming a family. Um, and Nate wasn't quite there yet, and so I knew I had to wait until um, God was leading him to that too, so that it was something we were doing together. Um, so it was about four years into our marriage, and we started coming to Rolling Hills and joined a small group and who had adoptive families in it. And just through exposure and meeting people, Nate said, you know, we should talk about adopting. Um, and of course I was ready and said, let's do it. I've got the paperwork, let's go. So I think it was a couple years into the, the way we got a referral for, um, I think at that time he was a nine month old boy and we got the picture and just fell in love, fell in love with him right away. Unfortunately, it took a lot longer than we had anticipated. So during that time, it was challenging because we were thinking about all the milestones that we were missing, um, all the moments, the first that he was experiencing that we weren't there for. We had a lot of community and friends around us um, who supported us, but nobody in that particular situation who could specifically relate to us. Um, and just feeling a sense of kind of loneliness in it. Um, that night I stayed up late um, searching on Google for Taiwan adoption blogs and I came across a mom's blog um, and her family was adopting from Taiwan and they were using the same agency out of California so I knew I had to reach out to her and I did and once we connected she told me that two weeks ago they had actually moved to Franklin. At that moment we found out that their son in Taiwan was actually at the same orphanage as our son. So it was October 2016 we were able to fly over there and go to the orphanage and meet him. And we later on have discovered pictures of our sons together and that relationship and friendship has been amazing and can only be orchestrated by God. We don't have to have all the details figured out. Um, we didn't have the finances figured out. We didn't know what the timing was going to look like. He's written the story in a much more beautiful way than we could have ever imagined. incredible story. Uh, being reminded that God's timeline may be different than our timeline. And just, I hope you've enjoyed over the past several weeks um, these stories and, and as individuals in our church have shared, families and uh, have shared uh, just the ways that God has, has moved in their hearts and we'll continue to share those stories as we work through this series called I Am David. I hope you guys had as much fun this morning as I did. Uh, celebrating and singing songs together. We have the most talented group of people that lead us in worship, don't we? They're incredible. It was, uh, next week we're going to talk about David being undignified, and I almost got to that point up here. Uh, the, the white guy dancing in front, it was kind of like, oh, stop, it's offensive. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed not only these stories and the worship time together, but this, this series that we've been working through talking about I am David and looking at the life of this central figure in our, in our relationship with Jesus, in the, in the story of Christianity. David lived 3,000 years ago in his story and the, and the parts that happen in all of his story in First and Second Samuel and, and the, his writings in, first, in, in the Psalms are so relevant to our lives today. 
He's mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture that more, that's more than Abraham and Moses. I mean, he is literally one of the central individuals in shaping and molding what we believe and understand about who God is and what he's done in our lives and for us. And over the past several weeks, if you haven't been here, just to give you a little bit of a recap, what we started with is we met David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He was just a young boy, a shepherd out in the field. When Samuel came and anoint, was sent to, by God to anoint a king, and he picked David. His brothers weren't it, and David comes in from the field, and Samuel anoints David as the king. The problem is that there was already a king, a man named Saul, and Saul was not a great king. He was chosen by the people, but he had rejected God. He had, he had been a disobedient, and God had rejected him as king and anointed David. But it would be a while, 10 years, before David would take the throne. And what we talked about that Sunday is the fact that God chooses us to have a relationship with us. Even though sometimes we, we, we may be not invited to the party like David wasn't invited to the party initially, but God has chose us. He sees us and he draws us to himself. And then we flip the page and look to chapter 17. And in chapter 17, David has an encounter with a guy named Goliath. And Goliath is an interesting figure. He's a, he's a giant. He's nine foot nine and a trained killer. Right? The guy you want to meet in a corner or in an alley, right? So David has this encounter with him as the armies of Israel are facing off against the armies of the Philistines. And, and the Goliath is calling out, send your best. And the best was actually Saul. But Saul wasn't going. And none of those Israelite, those Israelite soldiers were going. They were terrified. And David, this young man, comes and hears this giant rattling and, and calling out and mocking the God, armies of God the army of the Israelites and mocking God. And David says, I'll stand up and fight him. Because see, David's eyes weren't fixed on the size of the giant. His eyes were fixed on the size of his God. And he knew his God was much bigger. And it was such a great reminder for us and for me that our struggles are never bigger than our God. They never have more power than our God. And we moved from there to talk on, on it was Father's Day. We talked about the beginnings of just kind of how this story between Saul and, and David, Saul and David begins to get, get struggle, begins to grow and struggle. There's, there's a, a lot of jealousy that grows in, in Saul because of David's success. And so there's, there's this trouble between and how David continues to honor Saul, even though Saul is horrible to him, tries to take his life. Even though Saul does not deserve his honor, David honors him. And we're reminded that there's times in our lives where God puts us in places where people around us maybe don't deserve to be obedient. They don't deserve our obedience or deserve us to honor them. But God's called us to do that, and God sees us in those moments of obedience. Some of you have experienced that in your own life. God's called you to do that, something along those lines and, and, and trust him even in those moments where it feels like you should be able to take matters into your own hands. Last week, Pastor Jeff talked about this incredible relationship between David and Jonathan, who's Saul's own son. And this, this friendship that grows and this encouragement that Jonathan was to David and, and David was to Jonathan and how, how this friendship was, it lasts for years and years. And even after Jonathan dies, David honors that friendship. And we're reminded that we need godly friendships to encourage us and to spur us on and to remain faithful to God and his calling in our lives. And that those friendships take time and energy and effort, but they're good. And ultimately, we're reminded that Jesus is our greatest friend. Because while we were yet sinners, Jesus came and he died so that we could have a relationship with him. And this week, 
We're going to talk about David and Saul again and just how crazy this relationship gets in the, as we move towards the end of 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26 are the two passages we're going to really dive into. But the story gets really interesting in the picture of how, how David responds to Saul and his continued jealousy before David takes the throne. And what we see is remember that David is already, in chapter 24 and 26, he's already been chosen by God to be anointed as the king, but he's not yet king. He has men that, that follow him, 600 strong and mighty men that, that, that are willing to give their lives. The people love him. They've sang songs about him, but he's not yet king. He's waiting. He's trusting the Lord to fulfill his plan for his life and, and his timing. And that's what we want to learn from David as we intersect this story this morning is that there's, there's times that we've been in the same place, right? When we know that God has promised us something, maybe it's a relationship or we, we, we know that there's something that God has, he said that there would be peace or something that we would experience and we haven't seen that happen yet. And just like David, we're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And this morning is a great encouragement of God fulfilling those promises and what it looks like to wait in that. And, and the main point that I want us to grab as we work through this morning, and you can fill this out in your worship guide if you've, if you've got one of these. It's the first, first blank there. It says, fulfilling God's plan and God's timing means that I have to trust God more than I trust myself with the timeline and circumstances of my life. Like, that sounds good, but it's painful to, be, to, to, to actually walk out, isn't it? That fulfilling God's plan and God's timing means that I have to trust God more than I trust myself in the timeline and the circumstances of our lives. And we're going to work through these two chapters together uh, in chapter 26, 24 and 26 uh, and then ask ourselves three questions. But before we dive into that, why don't you just pray with me and just ask God to bless and anoint this time together. Jesus, we thank you for the songs that we get to th sing this morning. And how in your sovereignty and your, and your grace, you so matched the songs that we sang this morning and the word that we're going to hear from you, from your Bible. I pray that, God, those things would not go unnoticed, that you are just using this time to draw our attention to you, to remind us that you have a timeline and that we can trust you more than we trust ourselves to fulfill it. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you want to open to 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to start, chapter or verse 1 there. And we're going to work through these two chapters. I'm not going to read every verse, but you can follow along. Some of the highlights will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to grab one in the back. That can be our gift to you this morning. Uh, and, and you can take it home and mark in it and underline and all those kind of things. But this is beginning in chapter 24, verse 1. It says, after Saul pursued the Philistines... He was told David was in the desert of Engedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able men from all the land of Israel, and he set out looking for David and his, and his men near the crags of the wild goat. It sounds like a cool place to go, right? It really just means the rocks where the goats would be, right? And it's not as cool when you break it down, but crags does sound cool to me. 
So Saul's going to pursue David and just kind of just a, a second just to understand what's going on in a little context. And in chapter 23, if you turn back just a little bit, Saul has already gone to pursue David. This is not the first time David has been on the run from Saul and his jealous fits of rage. Saul wants to end David's life. And he got close in chapter 23, but then he finds out the Philistines are invading the land. And so he pulls back and he goes and fights that battle. But now that battle's done and he's coming back and he's going to pursue David. And he brings with him 3,000 abled men, 3,000 soldiers, guys who are ready to fight, do whatever Saul says. That's five times the number of the soldiers that David has with him. Tells us in scripture that David has about 600 men that are his soldiers. So Saul is serious about ending David's life. He's going to leave nothing to chance. He's bringing a great army to fight David's men. And go to chapter, verse 3, it says this, And he came to the, sheep's pen, the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were, in, were far back in the cave. And the men said, speaking to David, he says, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for, to you, for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David was conscience-stricken, which just means he was, he, he, had, he was convicted of his actions for having cut off the corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and he went on his way. It's important to understand a little bit of the setting and, and kind of the, what's happening here. They're, they're in this, this wilderness with all these caves and rocks. And, and, and at one point, David is in this cave with all of his men. And so the cave has to be a large cave. It's not a small cave where you go spelunking in. Is that what you call it? Like you're not dropping down this little hole like that. I mean, this is a big cave. And so at least it's a place where sheep herders or shepherds would bring their sheep for protection. And so David, in at least some portion of if not all of his 600 men are far back in the corner of this cave when Saul comes in to take care of some business. And none of his, none of his soldiers would come in. This would have been a private moment for, for Saul, but his, for David's soldiers are in the back, and David creeps up, and he cuts off a corner of that robe. It's an incredible scene, and it would, it would be somewhat easy for David to go unnoticed in this moment. And Saul leaves that cave and David steps out as Saul gets a little bit of ways and he bows down to him in this incredible show of honor and submission. Even though David knows that God has rejected Saul and he would replace Saul as king, he calls out to him in verse 10. He says, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in, in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you and said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And then David shows him the corner of that robe that he cut off, and he makes this statement that I really feel like we've got to grab, verse 12, in order for us to understand what's going on here. This is what he says. He said, may the Lord judge between, me, between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. 
The remainder of this chapter is Saul overwhelmed with David's kindness and his righteousness. And he recognizes that David is more righteous than him. And that God has blessed and anointed David. And he will one day take the throne. He has some requests for him. And then Saul leaves and goes back home. But David stays in the strongholds in the fortified area there in the wilderness. As if he knows that this battle is not yet over. And if you flip the page to chapter 26... The, the battle, this, this conflict is in fact not yet over. As again, they find out that where David is and, he, and they come out to battle again with 3,000 men, the force of, of Saul's army, they come out. In chapter 26, they're in this field and all of Saul's army is sleeping in this field and a couple of, at least one, maybe, not, maybe a couple of guys from David's men, they sneak down into the field to have a look at what's going on and they're standing next to Saul and, and Abner and all of these different uh, soldiers that are there. And he, he has this moment where he's lying there and he says, Ab, Ab, Abishai, uh, went with him and he sees Saul lying there. And in verse 7, he says, excuse me, verse 8, Abisha said to David, he said, today the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I will not strike him twice. That's a bad dude. Just, let me just pause for a second. That fella is tough, right? That's a dude I want on my side, Right? So Abishai says, I'm going to strike him. It'll be over. And David says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay his hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Even David in this moment knows that even Abishai, Abishai striking Saul would be his responsibility. David would be the one who would have the guilt. And as surely as the Lord lives, he says in verse 10, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on him, on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug near his head and let's go. And so they took the spear and they left and they, and they went unnoticed because the Lord had laid a great sleep on them. And they get up on the side of the mountain and again David calls out and says, again, I spared your life. I had an opportunity to take your throne to fast forward this process for myself. And again, I spared your life. And again, Saul cries out, not in repentance because his life doesn't change, but just in this sorrow that he recognizes that he's sinful and that he's, he's messed up and David is righteous and that God is going to one day give his throne to David. And, and Saul goes back and David stays, goes on his way. It says that David goes on his way and, and Again, the rest of these chapters between there and chapter 31 is just this story of Saul again being disobedient and failing in all of these different ways. And this, on the other side, the dichotomy that, that David is obedient and has success and continues to, to rise in notoriety and, and what God is doing and propelling him towards that throne. And then finally in chapter 31, Saul's life ends in battle as he takes his own life and David is destroyed. He mourns the loss of Saul the king of Israel, even though this man would pursue his life for so many years. The difference between those men is that Saul had his eyes on himself and his own kingdom and his own power, and David had his eyes on, on the Lord and the Lord's power and the Lord's kingdom. And it's an incredible story. I mean, these two chapters are a great narrative, and, and there's so many different things, so many rabbit trails I'd love to chase, but I really want us to make sure that we grab this one main point, that fulfilling God's plan and God's timing 
means that I have to trust God more than I trust myself with the timeline and the circumstances of his life, of my life. And for that, I want to ask us three questions, and, and I'm, I want us to be one of those places where we're asking and really meditating and thinking about the answers to it, not just giving that solid, quick answer, but God, do I really believe these things about you? And look at David and how he responded to these same kind of questions. The first question we come to, you have there in your worship guide, is this, does God know? Do I believe that God knows? Do I believe that God knows? And really the core of this question is this, do I believe that God is in control of the circumstances of my life? Do I believe that God is in control? Or is this just kind of spinning all out of control and nobody's really at the helm? Do I believe that God is in control? Do I believe that God knows? I believe there's a question that all of us are asking. Many of you this morning are asking this question in one way or another. Maybe it's not verbal in that way that, God, do you know? Do you know what's going on? But we're asking it in various ways. I believe that, that our neighbors are asking this question. I believe that your coworkers, your kids are asking the question, does God know what's going on? And the reality is that a lot of us have good reason to ask. We look at the life circumstances and it doesn't seem like God knows. But it says, but David rested confidently that God knew and was in control of the circumstances of his life. While we're spinning our wheels and asking these questions, and I believe we need to ask this question of, of, of does God know me? In, the, in, the, in our hearts, does God know what's going on? Do, does God know me? Sure, he knows David. He's a central figure in, in this whole scripture. But does he know me? Does he know my needs? Does he know my financial situation? Does God know my lo the loneliness and the pain that I feel? Does God know the depression and the anxiety that I've experienced? Does God know the, the addiction and the depression that I'm walking through or that my husb husband or wife or my kids are walking through? Does God really know those things? Does God know the, the loneliness and, and does he know the things that I've gone through or the things that I'm going through? Does God really know me? We do well to ask ourselves that question and really dig into our response. So a lot of times we come in and we raise our hands and we put a big smile on our face that God is good and he's in control. But our actions and our attitudes and our lives really don't reflect that we believe it. Do we believe that God is in control? David seemed to believe that God was in control. David seemed to rest and the fact that God was in control, that God knew this boy that he anointed as king almost 10 years before was on the run because the king that he was going to replace was pursuing him. God knew that. David believed that God knows, that he knew without certain, and, and he, he felt that knowledge that God knew who he was and what he was experiencing. He knew that certainly on this day in this passage as, as Saul in this vast wilderness with all of the places that Saul could have walked in as God brought him into the very cave that he and his soldiers were in. God knew not theoretically where David was. He knew exactly where he was, the coordinates on the map. And God was proving it as Saul walked into that cave. I know where you are, David. 
your situation, your running, the timeline of this whole thing, it's not going unnoticed to me. I know where you are. We do well this morning to just ask ourselves that question. Does God really know? Does God really know where I am? David cries, David writes these words in Psalm chapter, one, chapter one, 139. Just a little, a, a little highlight of a couple of places that he says some things that just, just show this deep confidence that David has that we can also take and that God knows us. He says this, that you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Skip down to verse 7. It says this, that where, I, where can I go from your spirit? Not only do you know where I'm at, I can't get away from you. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the seas, even there your hand guides me. Your right hand holds me fast. He knows where I am. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light becomes night around me. Even the darkness shall not be dark to you. Night will shine like the day, for darkness is light to you. God knows where David is, and David's confident in that. The question is, do we believe that God knows where we are? The circumstances and the timeline of my life. Maybe, it, maybe today, as you kind of reflect on this, we, we need to take that moment and say, God, now I, I need to really think about my response and the way that I'm living, do, does the way that I'm living reflect the fact that I say I believe that you know? And if you do know, how does that change the way that I live? Maybe it takes a second just to say, God, show me, remind me of the ways that you have already shown me that you know where I am that you know my needs and my circumstances, the trials and the struggles that I have. And second, a step further, that not only does God know, but the second question that I want to ask is that does God see? Do I believe that God sees? The heart of this question is, is really this, do I believe that God cares about me? It's one thing for me to know something, to know from a distance it's another thing for me to see and care about it. When Sarah McLaughlin sings that sweet song about some dogs, I know that there's a problem. I really just don't care. <laughs> some of y'all are like, oh no, I'm being facetious, sort of. <laughs> it's one thing to know that there's a problem, but does God care? Does he care? And David's eyes remain fixed on the Lord in the midst of his trials. They remain fixed on the Lord because he believed that God saw and cared about his circumstances. And if I'm going to trust God, if I'm going to, to be one who trusts God more than I trust myself with the timeline and the circumstances of my life, I'm going to have to not only know that he knows, but I'm going to have to be confident and believe that he cares, that he cares about where I'm at that he's moved by these circumstances, that he's not far off, but he's benevolent and he loves and he draws near in those moments. Can you imagine, 
Can you imagine the emotions, the, all of the things that you would have experienced, what it would have been like for 3,000 soldiers with the authority of the king to come after you, to be given the, the right to come and find you and kill you? Can you imagine the range of emotions that you and I would have experienced feel, feeling like, God, you may know everything, but do you really care are you really in control? And do you really care about my life if you're letting these 3,000 men hunt me? Listen, I can get in, get in a moment of traffic on my way to Nashville and feel like God's completely abandoned me. Like, where are you, Lord? Right, if God can part the Red Sea, he can certainly make a, make a way in this ocean of cars so I can make my lunch appointment. Right? Just a moment of struggle, I can feel like God's abandoned me. But David, it says that he's clear, that he knows that God has not abandoned, that God cares deeply about the moment and the struggles and the, and the trials that he's facing as this, this Saul pursues his life. And in, in Psalm chapter 142 is what we understand. This is a psalm that David writes in the midst of this season as he's being pursued by Samuel or by Saul and, and is hiding away in the clefts of these rocks. It says this, I cried aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watches over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one who, who, who is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to the Lord and say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. In this utter distress, the same utter distress that you and I would have felt in this moment of being pursued by this king for our lives in danger, he says, I have no one. Even though there's 600 men huddled ready to fight for him, a nation of people who are singing his praise. He says, there's nobody who cares for me until he looks and says, but you see, you are my refuge, Lord. You care. We know that there's those moments where we're in the midst of a trial and a struggle. We may have people all around us. We may be in a crowd of people but feel alone like nobody knows and nobody cares. But God's word, what David says, is that even in those moments, God sees and he cares. Just take it one step further that Jesus says these incredible words that he's not forgotten about you. Listen to what, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. He says, two, or not two sparrows sold for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside the Father's care. And even the hairs on your head are all numbered. No jokes about my, my baldness. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Listen to what Jesus says. Two birds are sold for a penny. One falls to the ground a half a cent, and God cares. And you are worth more than many sparrows. We need to let that wash over us, that he cares about you, that you are highly valued by him. 
He knows deeply the circumstances and the timeline of your life, and he cares about the struggles that you're in. Not one of them has gone past his view. He knows what you're in. And Paul says this, an incredible, in Romans, Paul writes this, that, but he demonstrates his love for us. Not only does he care about those things, he cares about our deepest needs, that he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while, while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Not only does he know our deepest needs, he cares about our deepest needs, and they sent him to the cross that we might have life with him. Which leads us to our last question, because he knows and he cares, but do I believe that he provides? Do I believe that God provides? That he knows my deepest need, and it's sent him to the cross. He would take action to meet my needs. He cares enough to take action to meet my needs. And it's the core of this question, is he willing to take action? Is he willing and is he able to take action? And David trusted God because he believed that God was willing and able to take action. He was willing and able to provide for his circumstances no matter what. And this is one of the clearest pictures of David's heart that we find in all of these stories is that twice, easily twice, David had opportunity to end Saul's life, to just fast forward this process. Hey, you've been anointed as king. Go ahead and take the throne. 600 men have your back and there's some bad dudes. Just read about it. That that 3,000 was not going to be a problem for those guys. The nation loves you. Let's fast forward this timeline. Go get that throne, David. And twice he says no, because being obedient to God and trusting in God's timeline was way more important than doing something out of order. He knew that God would provide in his timing. Listen to what he said in, verse, in chapter 26, verse 12. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrong that you have done to me, but I will not touch you but my hand will not touch you. I'm gonna put your timeline, Saul, in God's hands. And I'm gonna trust God with my timeline. And when God's ready to put me on the throne, he'll put me on the throne. Listen, all of us need to be reminded of this because we've had those moments where we want to fast forward that timeline. You have this desire to be in a relationship and have needs met and God has not provided for that yet. And you want to fast forward that timeline, but that disobedience is not going to prove satisfaction. Are you willing to trust God's timeline for your life even when it means taking away some of the momentary satisfaction that you would have? Is being obedient to the Lord worth more than cheating your way to the top at your company? Could you just fast forward the timeline to be CEO? Yeah, you probably could. But is being obedient to God and his timeline worth more than the status of having, having a corner office? Does God know? Does he care? Is he willing and able to provide? Yes. Yes, certainly it is. he is. Trusting him with that timeline means walking in obedience to him. It means knowing that he'll provide in his time what he's promised. It's amazing to me the the influence that David has over these men. The influence that we miss in our obedience sometimes. 600 men who had been away from their families to protect this one guy for who knows how long as they've been in the desert. They wanted to go home. 
Could you imagine the cheers behind him? And they said, no, don't lay your hand on him until God takes him. Could you imagine the influence that we have over our kids, dads? When we respond in obedience in moments that we're given the opportunity to fast forward a timeline? Can you imagine the, the, the influence that you'd have over the people that you work with or you live next door to when you don't fast forward the timeline and take steps to fulfill a promise or, or, or satisfy some desire when God is going to meet that in his timeline? Can you imagine what happens around you when you walk in obedience, when they see this countercultural reality of I know that God knows timeline and the circumstances. I know that God sees and he cares and I know that he's willing and able and he will provide when he's ready. It's so countercultural. But it's the kind of men and women that we want to be, men and women who are after God's own heart that display that kind of faith in God, more faith in him than we have in ourselves. Because when we trust God that way, our neighbors and our kids our spouses, our families will know something's different. And they're going to look to the God that we trust in. Saul saw it. Sadly, it didn't change anything in his life. But maybe your neighbors will see it. And because of your obedience, they'll repent and be obedient to him, to, to the Father as well. So the question as we move from there is just this, simply this. How did David get to this point? where he can confidently trust that God would provide in his timeline. What did David do to get there, right? I mean, he's David. So you're like, oh, he's David. That's it. I'm not David. Well, I'm going to blow your mind just real quick. I mean, this is a secret from the ages. I'm going to pull this out for you just real quick. Four things I think David did. We're almost done. You want to walk as David walked. Here's the secret to David's walk. The first is that he meditated on God's word. I mean, that's deep. It's about as elementary, honestly, as it comes. David didn't have a secret. He spent time in God's word. He loved God's word. And in God's word, he saw the stories of how God had provided, how God knew the Israelites were in captivity and how he cared about their captivity and how he provided for a way out. And not only in that story, but in countless other stories, he saw how God acted for his people. And so he could know that God knew and cared and would provide for him. You want to be able to walk with the same kind of confidence that David walks, then open up God's word the same thing that David did. I know I sound like a broken record. If, you, if I'm going to be on this stage, I'm going to talk about the importance of reading God's word because there's nothing more important. After we trust Christ for salvation, then spending time and meditating on his word. Second thing that the see David does in scripture is that he spends time calling out to God in prayer. The scriptures, the Psalms specifically, are full of these places where David calls out to the Lord in prayer, where he brings his needs before the Lord. And God changes his eyes and turns his eyes onto an eternal perspective where he's reminded that it's bigger than this, this moment over and over again in the Psalms. You can join us even in the next couple of weeks as through the summer we're reading through the Psalms as we study David's life. It's incredible. And here's the thing, that the same, the same God that David cried out to in the Psalms is the same God that you and I can cry out to today. You know how I know that? 
Because his word says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when you bow your head and cry out to the Lord and bring your needs to him, the same God who hears your prayers is the God who heard and knew and cared about the prayers of this central figure in Scripture. He took a posture of worship, which just means this. In those middle, in those middle of those storms and those trials and those struggles, he recognized that God was greater. He said, God, you are greater than these moments, than these hurdles, than these struggles. He says, you are good all the time. He took a posture of worship. Not just that he sang songs. We need to do that. But his posture was, God, you are great. My eyes are on you. My thoughts are on you. When my eyes and my thoughts get turned from somewhere else, I get an, emo- I get an anxiety and depression and struggle. But when my eyes are on you, there's nothing that you can't provide for. He took a posture of worship and he served and took action. Do you want to know why David knows that God will provide when Saul comes in or when in the timeline? It's because David had seen God provide in other places. He stepped onto a battlefield to serve the Lord with the Goliath. And countless other times throughout the story, some that we know and some that we may not know, David trusted the Lord, stepped out to serve the Lord and took action. You want to know and experience God's provision, God, God's timeline coming to fruition in your own life? Sometimes it's just us stepping into places and serving. You're saying, I'm going to trust you, God, and and, and step into places that I may be fearful of stepping into to, to see you provide in ways that I know that I can't provide. Maybe sitting with a group of middle schoolers is the kind of action that God's called you to. Or serving as a greeter or with our tech team or with our kids' ministry. If you really want to see God grow you in, in, in understanding and trusting in him more than you trust in yourself, we've got to take those moments to step into serving because we get to experience that fulfillment. We get to experience his provision in those places. I'm going to ask Jen and Andrew to come back out, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in just reflection and just response this morning. We really need to do two things the first is just what we give, and every, every week we, we take a moment to, to worship the Lord through giving. And this is not a break from worship. This isn't an interruption. It's all a part of what God designed us to do, to be those who, who celebrate his goodness and trusting him. Part of us stepping out and, and understanding God's provision is by giving. He's called us to do that. We don't shy away from talking about it because we know that God talked about it. And when we give, God shows up and he shows us again and again his provision. And so we want to invite you to give. And we thank you for giving those of you who are members here or partners here and you've given faithfully. We just thank you for that. Lives are being transformed not only here but in all over the globe because of your faithful giving. If you're a guest, we're certainly not asking for your money. Please just write it. Let us know that you were here and drop that in the offering uh, as it goes by. And we would love to connect with you. But this isn't a moment that interrupts worship. And I don't want to lose this moment of meditating on these questions. Is do I believe that God knows? Do I believe that God sees? Do I believe that God will provide? And so as we sing, or as Jen leads us, you respond the way that you need to respond. If it's just to listen to the words of the song, then just respond that way. If you want to sing, join in in singing, that's fine. 
But don't lose this moment of God dealing with you. Do you believe that he knows, that he sees, and that he'll provide? And worship through giving as well. I want to invite the ushers to come back up. And as we sing, or to come up, ushers, and as we sing, both give and meditate on those questions. Let's pray together. Jesus, we celebrate your goodness and your grace. And God, honestly, there are many of us that with smiles on our faces, our hearts are broken because we don't know if we believe that you know. We struggle. We struggle to say with confidence that we believe that you care and that you'll provide, but God, I pray that you would meet us. Oh, Jesus, that you would meet us here. Pray that you would take this, these offerings, God, and you would use them for your glory and for your gospel to be spread to every corner of the globe. It's in Christ's mighty and awesome name that we pray. Amen.